All right, so this morning we are starting our journey together through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, this is a journey that is going to take us verse by verse through the entire Gospel. But before we dive in, uh, I want to give a little background and some framework for the book kind of as a whole. So despite being the first Gospel in our Bibles, this one doesn't seem to be the first Gospel written. Of the four Gospels preserved in our Bibles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark seems to be the earliest one written, with Matthew and Luke following that, and then John kind of off doing its own thing. It seems that Matthew utilized and borrowed a lot from the writings of Mark. Yes, Cat agrees. Uh, in fact, some scholars go as far as to say that Matthew is really kind of an updated version of Mark. Some estimates have that close to 90% of the material that is present in the Gospel of Mark is also present, sometimes verbatim, in the Gospel of Matthew. So, to the point that if Matthew was a modern book being published, it really wouldn't get very far because of copyright and plagiarism issues. But Matthew does a lot more than just kind of retell the story of Mark. Matthew adds a ton of new material into the story. Matthew adds a very extended prologue and adds a coda or an ending to, to it, or to use literary term, adds a nice denouement to the story. In addition, Matthew adds what are sometimes called the five dialogues. Now, what these are is these are five extended speeches or teachings of Jesus. And some of the most famous Jesus teachings are actually in these sections. So you have a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, things like that are in these five teaching sections. And there's many other editions as well. Now, so in some ways, you could really think of Matthew as the extended version of Mark. Not just a retelling, but an expanded version of it. Kind of like how the Lord of the Rings movies, they have their, what, you know, two-hour theatrical cut running time movies. And then they have their super beefy extended three to four-hour versions. So you can think of it in kind of a similar way. Now, much of this additional material focuses on highlighting a couple different themes. First of which is Jesus... Jesus's, that's a weird word to say, Jesus's Jewishness. Now this is something that becomes a very important theme for Matthew, is highlighting this very human element of Jesus. Another theme that Matthew really gets at is the conflict between Jesus and the religious authority figures of his day. So a lot of the passages we read or the stories we know of Jesus in conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and all of that comes from Matthew. <coughs> Excuse me. Another big theme in Matthew is the call for evangelism, or as we could talk a little bit last week, the, the call to the nations. The idea of spreading the word or the gospel of Jesus is a very core and central theme to Matthew, and one, one that we'll touch on many, many times throughout this series. Now, the book itself breaks down into five basic overarching sections. The first of which is a prologue or introduction. 
So these are things like the nativity story, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, kind of the, those pre-ministry stories of Jesus. Next, the second section kicks off Jesus's ministry in Galilee. This is the time when Jesus really makes himself known as the Messiah. This is Jesus coming out and declaring through word and mostly deed that he is in fact the Messiah. The third section sees Jesus's ministry slowly move south toward Jerusalem. And one of the main themes of this time is Jesus preparing and really preparing his disciples for the coming conflict, for the conflict that is ahead on the horizon. In addition, we have a lot of interaction with Samaria here, because Jesus travels through Samaria to get through Jerusalem. And these interactions will lay some groundwork for some of the future conflict and then some of the future writings to come. The fourth section we get is Jesus in Jerusalem. This one is the longest section, and it encompasses a lot of Jesus's head-to-head -head conflicts with the religious authority, ultimately culminating with the Passion Week, culminating with Jesus's uh, trial, arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. The fifth and shortest section is really an epilogue. It is the idea of the birth of mission, the go out and make disciples of all the nations. That's kind of this new addition that Matthew adds to the story, and one that we're going to, again, talk about quite a bit as we move forward. So those are the five kind of rough outline sections of Matthew, so you can kind of have, a, have an idea of how things look as we move forward. Now, you might have noticed that Matthew presents Jesus's ministry as a single journey, as a single journey starting in the north in Galilee, going south through Samaria, ultimately culminating in Jerusalem. Now, this is more than likely a stylized description. Other Gospels, as well as historic settings and historic context understanding, would indicate that Jesus traveled back and forth from Jerusalem to Galilee and around the region many, many times. But by presenting Jesus's ministry as a single long journey culminating at Jerusalem, Matthew is subtly pointing out that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. Because if you remember, way back in the summer, we read through some of the Psalms of Ascent. Now, these were the songs that people would sing on their trek toward Jerusalem, toward the Passover festival. It was customary to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, the Passover is a festival that commemorates God's freeing of the people from, from Egypt. It commemorates the angel of death passing over or skipping over every house that had lamb's blood on the doorframe. It commemorates God's love and compassion for the people. So, by presenting Jesus' ministry as one long trek, one long ascent toward Jerusalem, culminating with Jesus' death during the Passover celebration, Matthew is reminding us that Jesus is in fact that ultimate Passover lamb and the ultimate expression of God's divine love and compassion for us. Now, this is something that really hits on another, I don't know if it's a central theme, a tactic Matthew uses, for lack of a better word, and that is the idea of prophecy fulfilled. 
Matthew refers to Old Testament passages a ton in this book. The Gospel of Matthew is arguably, maybe, I don't quote me on this, but potentially the Gospel that has the most Old Testament references in it. And Matthew does this to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of these passages and how Jesus is indeed the coming Messiah. By utilizing these Old Testament passages, Matthew is trying to show the current audience and us, you know, the subsequent audience reading it, that this Jesus that is presented here in this text is in fact the Messiah prophesied and talked about for so long. Now, there's a ton more we could talk about, about the kind of overall big scope view of Matthew, but I think we're going to leave it there for right now and go ahead and dive into the text itself. Now, Matthew opens in maybe the most exciting way possible with a big old genealogy. Now, I am not going to make you sit through me reading all of these names. That you don't want to sit through that. That would take way too long and would honestly be kind of boring. But so I'm going to leave it up on the screen here for a few minutes to, for you to go through and look at. Because honestly, that's something I just learned how to do a few weeks ago. So we can do it now. And I don't know why I just gave a thumbs up, but the, these verses are on the screen right now. So you can't see that. Now, as you read through this, I am sure there are some names you will recognize. Names like Abraham, Ruth, David, and there will be probably a lot of names you've never heard of before. Maybe names like Tamar, Ram, Zadok. So the real question we should be asking right now is, why start a story of Jesus with a list of Jesus's relatives, with a list of Jesus's ancestors? Well, maybe let's answer that question by first looking briefly at what this section is not trying to do. This section is not trying to be a perfectly accurate Ancestry.com exact family tree. The term that is translated into English here as father of isn't really meant to be thought of in the biological sense of father exclusively. It might be better to think of it maybe more as the ancestor or the predecessor of. And now some of these relationships are 100% father and son. Abraham, Isaac, Jesse, David. There are a number of examples of those. But there are other examples that we 100% definitely know are not father and son. For example, verse 8 ends with Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Now, from the Old Testament books of Kings and Chronicles, as well as outside contextual and archaeological resources, we know that these two were not father and son. And in fact, we know there were three generations of people between them. We know there was Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah between them. So is Matthew just a terrible genealogist? Is, is that what's happening here? Well, no, I don't think so. Um, what I would argue is happening is that Matthew is opening this book up by trying to paint a large scale overall view of Jesus' family. And more specifically, the variety and the kind of people that Jesus' family entails. 
the type of people that Jesus came from. And there are some very interesting people and situations in this family tree. For example, uh, Judah and Tamar, they are listed as having twin boys. But that, that, that's nice, that's good, right? Well, except that Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. And there was just shade going on on both sides. This was not a good situation. So if you were crafting a family tree and you were going to skip over some generations, I would think that this generation would be one you would want to skip over. You wouldn't, why would you want to highlight the generation that has a ton of baby mama drama? Another example, Rehoboam, the grandson of King David. He all but single-handedly caused a civil war which culminated with the breakup and the splitting up of the kingdom of Israel. All because he was greedy and wanted more money. And even some of the people we might look at as like, oh, there's a good person, King David, the great King David. It isn't uniformly good and in some ways really isn't the best guy. There is the whole obvious story where David decides, you know what, I'm going to sleep with this dude's wife. And then to cover it up, I'm going to get said dude murdered. There's that. But there's more than that. That's not a one-off event. David has a habit of being a shady fellow, of being kind of sus at times. It is honestly amazing how many times someone challenges David or is a threat to David's throne, and that person suddenly finds themselves not living anymore. So why highlight some of these people? Why highlight events such as this? And there's other things too in this family tree. This family tree goes out of its way to specifically call out prostitutes and poor immigrant female refugees both of which are things that could have caused major issues in Jesus's day. Major legal issues. This could have brought up things like land right claims and property. All of that could have been brought up because some of these people were in Jesus's family tree. So if you are choosing a family, it seems like it would make sense to choose one with as little drama as possible, right? I mean, if you're God and you can drop Jesus into any family line, why choose this particular one? And taking it a step further, why does this book, why does Matthew specifically highlight and call out the people it does? It, it seems like this book is going out of its way to highlight some of the biggest skeletons in Jesus's family closet. Why highlight elements that would, in best case scenario, cause people to look down upon Jesus, and honestly, in worst case scenario, could cause Jesus and any followers, any movement that gets started from Jesus, potential legal and credibility issues? What is going on here? Well, I would argue that one of the main reasons for including this specific genealogy at the start of Matthew is to highlight that Jesus redeems 
anything and everyone. So many potential issues, situations, backgrounds, hardships, difficulties, sins, are represented here in Jesus' family tree. And they all come together and culminate with the birth of Jesus. They all find their redemption in Jesus. Think about what that means for us. On the larger family level, it means that we are not defined by those who came before us. For good or for ill. It means we can't rest on the greatness, on the wealth, on the power, on the prowess, on the whatever of those who came before us, of our ancestors. But it also means that we, we are not viewed through the lens of the shortcomings of our ancestors. The sins of our parents, of our grandparents, of our great-grandparents, of all those aren't our sins. Now, yes, it is 100% true that our families influence us and have big impacts on us. But we don't have to be defined by our families. We don't have to be locked into something because of our families. Now, on the personal side, this genealogy means that no matter what we have done, we can find redemption through Jesus. Jesus wasn't born to create a little club, a very exclusive club where only the best kind of people get in. Jesus isn't working the gate, letting people in, not letting people in, based on how good they are. Jesus came into this world to offer admittance to everyone, to anyone, no matter what our past are like, no matter what we've done in our past. Our past doesn't really matter or define what happens with our salvation when it comes to our salvation in Jesus. It's our present. It's our current faith. It's our current relationship with Jesus that guides how our future will go. And ultimately, it all comes down to grace. None of us are good enough to earn this salvation, but the flip side is none of us are bad enough to not be offered this salvation. It all comes down to God's unending grace. And all of this in the Gospel of Matthew is set up before we even get to the Nativity story. So there's a lot going on as genealogy. Now, there's one more thing that I want to highlight briefly. And it's something that I honestly only recently just noticed. Look closely with me at verse 16. This is the end of the family tree here. So it starts out with, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Notice, whose family tree is this? Whose lineage is this? This is Joseph's family tree. Not Mary's. Joseph's. Now, remember, Jesus is not Joseph's biological son. This is something that I think we all and most people kind of know. Yeah, yeah, the Immaculate conception, Jesus, G Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but it's not something we really think about. Think about the implications of. Jesus was adopted by Joseph. Jesus had a stepdad. Many of the Old Testament passages that talk about this forthcoming Messiah talk about the Messiah as being from the line or the house of David. The, the Messiah has to be a descendant of David. Now, there is no indication that Mary is a descendant of David. We can't find anything that suggests that Mary is of the house of David. It's only through Joseph that Jesus gets this link, that Jesus becomes part of the house of David. It's only through Jesus's adopted father. Now, a book that has fulfillment of prophecy as a main central theme, what does it mean? What Think about what it means that the first prophecy it shows is fulfilled is fulfilled through adoption. Think about what that means for how God views family. Family is not a closed off affair. Family is open. Family is expanding. Family can include anyone. I think you could argue that Jesus coming into the house of David through the adoption of his father, Joseph, is in some ways reflective of how we are adopted into the family of God through Jesus. And just like Jesus is very much from a legal and a practical standpoint, a part of the family of David through his adoption, we become very much entrenched and very much a part of the family of God through our adoption, through salvation. The sin and everything else that separated us, that in some ways kept us out of that family, it's, it's gone. Our adoption into the family of God is complete. It's unending. Just like Jesus's adoption into the family of David was utter and complete. Now, all of this, all of this was made possible through the redemption of a child born himself into a broken and drama-filled family. A child that can redeem us all. All of that from a genealogy. Join me as we pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this wonderful opportunity you have given us. And we thank you for the amazing gift you have given us to be fully and utterly adopted into the family of God. We just thank you for the amazing gift that you gave us of your son, Jesus, that makes this adoption possible, that makes it so we can fully, completely, and utterly say we are daughters, sons, children of God. And Lord, we just ask that you would go with us throughout this week, that you would bless us and keep your hand upon us and keep us safe. In your precious name we pray. Amen.
All right, so that there was a lot of pretty deep and meaningful theological truths in a boring old genealogy, right? And there is so much more we could get to. We didn't even touch on the symbolism of the 14 generations. We didn't even touch upon the fact that this genealogy is all but unique because women are in it. And what that means, what that highlights, what that implies moving forward. There are so many good things in this genealogy. Honestly, I could probably do a whole series on it. I feel like many of you would revolt if I suggested that. So this week we're gonna, we're gonna, next week we're gonna move on, continue in with our story. Now, before I leave you, I briefly want to highlight a few resources that might be useful for you if you wanna journey with us together through Matthew. We're gonna be in Matthew for quite a while. Despite that, there is going to be a ton of things we're not going to have time to talk about. I get, what, 25 minutes every Sunday to, to talk through a passage. And they're like this week, there's going to be a lot of things I'm just not going to have time to get to. So if you want to kind of continue to dig deeper, if, if you're enjoying this and want to just go full head on into it, I have two book suggestions for you that might be a good way to help you continue with this. The first one is this commentary by Craig Evans from the New Cambridge Commentary Series. This one here is a really good mix of accessibility, theology, history, and language. It's not going to go too deep down a rabbit hole of any one of those. It's very, very accessible. It is pretty easy to read, but you're going to get a ton of great and good information out of this. So this is a great choice. Now, for my big uber Bible nerds out there, we have This Beast by Francis from the New International Commentary series. This one is going to go very heavy into language, very heavy into Greek, a little bit into Aramaic. It's going to go into history. It's going to go and hello, meowvers. So this would be a good one if you are a big nerd who loves nerding out over this stuff. So I'm going to go ahead and close before my cat knocks over all of the equipment here. So I had a wonderful time with you. I hope you can join us next week. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>